Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news of the week. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief, and I'm joined today by John Fiorillo, Executive Editor, and Rachel Mutter, Editor. Hello, you two. We're going to dive right in. It is another long, long, long week of coronavirus news. Uh, it's changing day to day, and uh, we never know uh, just what's going to come down the pike. This week's been full of news of uh, processing plants, having uh, cases crop up, uh, about companies seeing their clients melt away, about pivots to retail. All kinds of things uh, continue to happen as uh, coronavirus takes its takes its toll on the seafood industry. So why don't we start with you, John? One of the things that uh, Frank Dulcich, the CEO uh, of Pacific Seafood Group in the United States, one of the things he talked about on our digital event uh, last week was the 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 fact that suddenly people that were deemed maybe less important, projects that were deemed less important, positions that were deemed less important, um, particularly things like digitalization, those positions and those workers are suddenly far more important. And you wrote a column uh, kind of looking at whether or not uh, the coronavirus has in some ways um, made it more clear that not only the inefficiencies in the company, but that it may even... Uh, usher out some of these uh, more seasoned companies, um, and you you got a, quite a reaction to that. Yeah, I was speculating whether um, you know this um, increase in the use of technology really uh, inspired by the coronavirus um, as a a way to keep companies moving. Um, if that may have an unintended consequence of um kind of putting some of the senior executives uh at these companies in in a uh kind of precarious place uh, most of you know that level is a high salary level and companies are going to emerge from coronavirus with definite you know challenges financially so i was you know, I was just kind of playing off his comments a little bit to think about, well, with all this technology, will that, you know, replace some of this older veteran um, know-how? And uh, yeah, I got quite a bit of response from that. And, uh, you know, it ran the gamut of, yes, it's happening to me to um, know it, you know, the perfect scenario is a blend of veteran leadership new young employees with new ideas and a healthy dose of technology where it can where it can be applied but that's not an easy easy switch uh to make i think a lot of companies have been struggling with that for years right and so um i feel like all of a sudden um this is this kind of hit like a ton of bricks of of how far behind maybe the seafood is on uh, on things like AI, things like blockchain, on um, technologies that really streamline the the buying uh, process and the logistics process. What do you think, Rachel, about uh, about that? Do you see this change happening uh, quickly, and will it mean that we're going to lose some um, some experience and brain power in the process? And what's the risk? Yeah, I mean, I think it probably will happen. Um, I think, as you say, the seafood industry is sort of 
been dragging its feet slightly uh, on digitalization and, and sort of using all this new technology that's come into play. Um, it's been quite a shift, I suppose, in the last 20 years, um, a massive shift, actually, in terms of technology, sort of the biggest shift in our lifetime. So in that sense, it's been sort of a quite a short period of time in which in which industries have had to make that turnaround to sort of this new reality of digitalization. And I think other industries have probably been a bit faster to do that than the seafood sector has. Um, but yeah, we've been hearing more and more that the coronavirus um, and its sort of its lockdown effect and people working from home and having to sort of remotely control things um, is pushing seafood towards making those changes finally. So I, th I think that's a positive thing. Um, I think it will be a bit of a shock because it's going to now happen sort of fairly quickly rather than a gradual process. Um, yeah, and I think that I think John's probably right. I think it probably will mean that some people's roles perhaps become less crucial, especially if they're being paid a lot of money um, and have always been that sort of that networking face. Um, maybe that's not such an important role anymore. So that that's interesting. That's not to say it's the right thing to happen, um, but I think it probably inevitably will happen. Um, what we lose with that, I, I don't know. As I say, you sort of wanted it to be a more gradual process so that this could be, you know, an easing out. But yeah, I think it will be more drastic than that. So I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, you know, the this industry is long talked about. It's an industry built on relationships. And, and uh, I think that's true. There's no doubt about that. Most industries maybe are that way. But you have to kind of wonder if the how important that relationship um, process or you know portion of the business will be going forward as technology you know creeps more and more into supply chain management and those types of things. I like to think the relationship part of the business will always be there and will be strong. But I mean, you can look at the Boston Seafood Show this year and, and the Brussels show and and their disappearance, uh, basically. That has, I, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to in the last, who have said, oh, we're just reaching out to all our customers with Zoom meetings and they're wonderful and it's great and da-da-da-da-da. So, you know, I don't know. I, I think Rachel's right. It, it happened so abruptly that I'm not sure we can quite measure the longer-term impact, but, you know, there will be an impact for sure. That's an interesting point because having said all that, actually, now technology's at a point where and I don't, this is going to sound slightly patronizing please don't take offense John but where anyone can use it <laughs> um, <laughs> okay <laughs> no but I suppose if you look maybe 10 years ago technology the, the interface of technology was was different and perhaps it took someone who truly understood it in order to use it but actually now technology is at a point where it should be that anyone can kind of use it so maybe that then negates sort of People were less used to using it, sort of losing losing a job. So I, I don't know, because as you say, it's not like the networking has become less important. It's just being done differently. So, you know, maybe we still absolutely need those roles. I don't know, it's an interesting thing to think about.
I think the you know it kind of goes back to even the industrial revolution you know not to not to go so far back but it really <laughs> does right that um, that workers have long been afraid of technology that can can take away jobs or that makes work more efficient and uh, companies have always looked for ways to make things more efficient and um, you know and that's been a constant push and, and pull and. Um, and that's made for, I think, positive progress, um, you know, ensuring that those two things are kind of married together. You don't forget the human element of it. But that said, um, there's certain technologies that um, have to be embraced sometimes in a, in, a, uh, in a really jarring way. And I think that's, like you said, Rachel, that's already kind of happened as a society. But there's something about everyone working from home and something about everyone being on uh, on Zoom or Skype or, or whatever it is, um, that's normalized it, I think, in a strange, in a different kind of way, like you hinted at, John. I mean, I think that we're all used to communicating with one another at Interfish on Skype, and, and we've, we're all in different time zones, and so we we've, are used to this technology. Um, but that said, even even so, things like video meetings that maybe didn't seem as natural, um, I, I at least find myself being more, uh, feeling more um, comfortable, you know, talking to, to people on camera, whereas before, I think, you know, you, you reach for these technologies that are familiar. And all of a sudden, all these systems that maybe, uh, and it's not just people that are, it's not just a, an older versus younger generation. There's There's people that just flat... Uh, don't want to, don't like change, um, and and don't want to embrace um, certain new technologies. But all of a sudden, we are shotgunned into it. We there is no option. You can't not know how to use uh, all your online systems. You can't not know how to use webmail, how to use apps on your phone. I mean, it's absolutely critical. And right now, there's um, there's probably you know, like you said too, John. I I think. Just this whole this whole pandemic is exposing inefficiencies and exposing that um, there are ways to to do things differently, um, and so I I do think this will result in a pretty radical a pretty radical shift. I think we had just a wonderful photo today that um, really encapsulizes what, what we're talking about here. There was a story about the Icelandic seafood company Fisk uh, signing a, a deal with uh, Volca um, for some equipment. And the picture we have <laughs> are the two principles of uh, the principles of each company shaking hands video style. You, you, you have to see it, but um, it, it, I, it just struck me as, wow, okay, it, it's come to this then okay so anyways uh yeah i i think things are are going to change certainly on the supply side and that definitely will have some ramifications for some of the longer term veteran employees i i believe i think that frictionless trade of things um you know and, and fric frictionless purchasing um it's so much a part of all of our lives now and um I just absolutely can't see that changing, and that doesn't, you know, it could be whatever. It can be ordering out, or it can be ordering a, you know, a million-dollar piece of equipment. I think there's so many ways for people to understand and see the value of products now without 
dealing with people on a commercial, um, you know, maybe on a, on a, on a personal level. Um, I'm not saying that's true of everything, uh, by any means, but I do think there are probably a lot more, uh, products and services that, um, you know, are going to be made, uh, made redundant by this process, uh, and, and people along, along with it. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I think we're going to see more and more, not, not a reduced need for, uh, for um, relationships by any means, but I think that we're going to see the ways people communicate and the skill sets that are required to represent companies in a commercial way. I think those are what's going to shift and people will either make the shift or they won't. And I think that'll, you know, dictate kind of um, what things look like on the other side of things. Well, taking a pivot over to uh, over to the world opening up a bit and what things might look like, um, John, you looked at uh, the retail segment uh, last week and uh, this week and last week, and you also took a look at what was happening at Red Lobster, and they're both very interesting sides of the of the same uh, the same story in a way, and we're hearing this from everybody: retail is booming, food services is collapsing. Um, Red Lobster has had closures all over uh, the United States. There's closures all over the UK and Europe, and every you know all major chains and all small restaurants are struggling with this very same thing, while retail is booming. So, um, just to throw it out there to both of you, Rachel can start with you. But what's this going to look like on the other side? We're seeing people. Uh, launching delivery services. Um, our, our colleague uh, Rachel Sapin just wrote a story on True World Foods now delivering sushi, where you know they've been delivering something like eighty percent of all the sushi products, sushi raw material in uh, in North America, and now they're testing out home delivery of sushi. So, are there any business models kind of emerging that that you see um, might stick in terms of retail food service hybrids or or what what things might look like yeah it's interesting again isn't it because i think yeah again it sort of comes back to this um this sort of seafood being slightly behind everyone else because i i feel like this online food delivery all these these systems that are set up that sort of work better probably for other for other products and have other products sort of done better at developing um, formats that that fit it. I feel like seafood um, hasn't worked that much in in that in that segment. It doesn't it doesn't necessarily have the products in place that work for sort of home delivery. I think there was there was an article we wrote, and I can't remember who said it, but that that seafood at the moment companies don't produce seafood in a way that delivers well, that that home delivers well, right? So it either presents badly or Alternately, it's sort of given the image of presenting badly, even if it actually would be fine. So this is something, I suppose, it comes down to marketing. It comes down to finding the right products, presenting them correctly, and then marketing them to these uh, to these food service outlets that in the future will be doing far more home delivery than than they have been in the past. Um, so seafood really needs to find its find its place in that, and that's that's quite important. And again. As I say, this is something that probably should have been happening more gradually over the last few years and sort of hasn't been happening particularly. So now it's going to have to happen very quickly. Um, And the amount of investment and work that goes into it means that it will likely stick. 
when you look at sort of the mainstay mainstay products for seafood, they are not products that travel that well. Fish and chips, for example, fish fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, seafood. It's what's the biggest complaint? It's the smell. So, um, hmm. You know, where does seafood fit in there, John? Well, I might have a different uh, opinion than Rachel on this. I. I, I think definitely, you know, restaurants will look to up their game in uh, home delivery and takeout. I, I think that was already happening, but I just don't think seafood w- will be able to go that way. I, uh, for the reason you said, Rachel, it, it just doesn't travel well. I mean, we've been ordering takeout and delivery since we've been home, um, my family, and uh and, uh, no, you know, we're not we're not going to Red Lobster to order it. Uh, we used to eat sushi a lot, but you, you know, you'd go to a restaurant for that. We haven't had ordered sushi, not because you can, but it's just, you know, it's it just doesn't fit in. I think the bigger change is going to be at retail, where you know, seafood has always been one of those foods where you have to go smell it in the or bite out of the fresh case make sure it smells okay you know look at it have the guy cut you a quarter pound blah 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 right but um we're seeing there's a whole better way to do that right now at retail so i think that what's going to happen uh at retail as fresh scales back is a lot more grab and go products a lot more value-added products um, kind of the things we're seeing right now. And I think that's where the big change is going to be. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an undeniable, undeniable trend. And that's been borne out by uh, a couple of comments already, uh, and a couple of early uh, early bits of data. I mean, we don't have too much from March, but we are getting some IRI and Nielsen data coming over the transom on, on uh, retail sales uh, at the very least. And... Um, yeah, uh, we're we're seeing uh, we're seeing uh, pre-packed salmon surging uh, in the French market. We have a story on that tomorrow. Uh, we're seeing Morale, the equipment maker, saying that they're seeing big orders for that. Um, and Norwegian Seafood Council uh, released some data on that as well. That um, that the the volume yeah in France alone, home consumption grew by twenty one percent. So that that's pretty remarkable that as people eat in the home, how are they going to do it? How are they going to carry it? How are they going to get that delivered? Well, it's going to be prepacked, and whether that's with flavors or whether that's some kind of value adding, um, I don't know. Uh, we'll see. But yeah, there there's no question that that um, that continuing trend of eating in the home that was already beginning. Uh, I remember Tim Fires at NPD was talking about that. Um, that's just gonna that's just gonna continue. Yeah, I w- I'm working on a story about Surimi uh, retail sales in the U.S. right now, and um, across the board, you know, sales are up 20% or more. Uh, some of the brands are up even more than that. Uh, and Surimi's interesting. The, I'm talking about the packaged Surimi, not the stuff you'd get out of the deli case, like a salad, which that business has just plummeted, uh, cratered. But the package stuff, you know, it really does present some of the best that seafood can. It's it's packaged, it's ready to go, it's fully cooked, it's it works in a lot of simple recipes. Um, so it's getting, you know, 
attention shined on on it right now that it probably wouldn't normally have. So, yeah, I I think retail is really going to be a changing uh, a changing place in in the next four or five years for seafood. Yeah, so John, but that's interesting because I think that also sort of plays into this maybe generational thing because you saying about seafood being a product that everyone needs to to smell and look at before they buy it. I'm not sure that's true. I think that's generational. And I think younger generations don't feel that need to smell and see seafood before they buy it. I think they're probably more than happy to order some sushi online and have it delivered to their house. And I don't think they'd have many qualms about that. So I think it's a misconception, perhaps, in both the seafood industry and the food service sector that seafood doesn't deliver well. I think perhaps it's delivers fine and that younger generations millennials um, are pretty happy to order it online so I think again maybe this is an opportunity for seafood to to shift its thinking shift its marketing um, yeah and get in tune a little bit more with what the next generations will be after for the record I just want to note that Rachel called me old twice <laughs> in this podcast so i didn't call you old i didn't call you old well you implied you implied Ra- rachel seems to be positioning herself among the younger demographic I by the way that's so i i hear you hilarious. trying to be the voice of a generation that may not be your generation rachel well had <laughs> you taken that upon yourself thank you <laughs> Just to finish things up, too, and, and moving on to another topic, uh, we've had some uh, coronavirus outbreaks and coronavirus cases popping up among seafood companies now, um, which is inevitable. Um, but we've, um, we've now had, you know, a handful. We've had Leroy, we've had Blue Mark, Comanchaca, uh, Millerax, Trident. Uh, we've had, um, you know... Uh, Cases pop up here and there. Most recently this week, the big one was Highliner in Portsmouth uh, here in the U.S. They shuttered their plant, uh, a value-added and frozen plant, uh, after finding, they said under 10 cases, uh, and they shut it down. Here's my question to you guys. Um, Given what you've read about the protocols, I mean, is there anything that you've seen that, um, and I know you're not epidemiologists, but is there anything that you've seen in terms of how these companies have reacted to outbreaks or reacted to cases that you think has been better, that has been smart? Um, and another part of that question is how many cases is too many? When on a processing line should you shut things down? Um, I think I rattled off this list last week, but JBS, Smithfield, Cargill, Purdue, um, on and on and on and on. Um, companies have had major outbreaks uh, in, in Canada, in the United States. Um, haven't heard so much about that happening in Europe, um, but certainly in the U.S. there's been a lot of that. So, uh, which begs the question, um, you know, is the is there a potential that there's a shot coming to seafood? Because now... A lot of uh, a lot of analysts of the meat sector are saying there could be a, a beef shock, a meat shock, from these plants um, shutting down. So, what can seafood do differently? Is there any lessons to be learned out there, Rachel? I'll let you. I'll let you uh, expound on that. Oh, it's it's yeah, it's it's nigh on impossible to answer because you know I feel like as this as this crisis 
rumbles on, uh, we're sort of given more and more information about the severity of what's happening or uh, of how easily this thing spreads, right? I mean, I feel like every day I'm more and more concerned about like spraying down packages I receive, um, even in the post. Like it's ridiculous. And but it seems like this thing spreads really easily. And I've seen some sort of graphics and videos that that explain it and show how it spreads. Um, and in that sense, I find it very, very hard to understand how a processing operation, when it has had a positive case of coronavirus amongst its workers, gets to carry on processing. And it, maybe that's just my misunderstanding of the issue, but I don't see how with all the washing down and temperature checking in the world that you get to carry on because if that worker has tested positive you know they've probably already been infectious for two weeks and they've been in that factory working and they've likely infected people around them who won't show symptoms for two weeks so yeah I don't I don't understand how with all the you know the measures that I've seen being put into place after a case of infection crops up um, some of the measures have been you know, isolating employees that have been in contact with that person, obviously disinfecting of the plant. Um, I think in Chile, they're putting into place sort of tunnels that workers have to come through. And actually everyone, I think there's, there's a case in, in Chile where an island is sort of having disinfecting tunnels put in place um, so that anyone entering that island where this, this salmon production is, um, is being like sprayed down and checked and and I sort of see all this stuff being done and I'm impressed at the, you know, at the thoroughness of it all, but I still don't quite understand how this ensures that it doesn't keep on happening. Because as far as I can see from other information, this, this thing is super infectious. And once, once you've got a case of it in your community or you know, amongst your workers, I, I don't see how you stop it spreading amongst others. Well, I I kind of think I think the seafood companies have been doing a really good job given the challenge in front of them. Um, the the highliner thing caught my attention because of how few cases they discovered before they closed down the facility. When I first saw the headline, I thought, "Oh wow, they must get they must have 50, 60 cases or so." It was fewer than ten. So. I, you know, that told me that they're very vigilant about what's happening. And the other companies that you rattled off, Drew, uh, I mean, they're doing everything possible as far as I can tell. And under the guidelines of the CDC or whichever health agency they're, they're working under. So... I, I guess my point would be what more can be done? I, I understand what you're saying, Rach. Um, it, you know, there's this thing is spreads like wildfire. But if you're going to keep the operation open and running, the best you can do is, you know, all the things that are being done. So I, I, I don't know. I just get the feeling that the companies that are operating are doing everything they can. And, you know, it's just kind of like you just hang on day by day, hope you don't have some 
massive outbreak, I guess. It's, it's kind of yeah. a scary thing to think about, but I think that's kind of the reality. No, I mean, I, I agree that they're doing everything they can, and I've sort of been impressed with the, the measures that have been taken. Um, but I just, yeah, and, and Highline is a prime example because they actually shut down the factory, which I sort of think has to be the first move, personally. Um, other companies haven't done that. I think Millerex was sort of touting the fact that they sort of got ahead of the issue and had all these protocols in place that meant they didn't have to shut down when when a, an employee tested positive. But I, I don't know. That makes me that makes me wince slightly. Um, I think the first move should be to shut down <laughs> um, for however long it takes. But you know, you've got you've got the safety of your employees at stake here, and I don't think. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I know everyone has to make money, and everyone has to selfish, but. It's a it's a tricky one. Yeah, I think that you know um, it's it's a it's not if it's when, and so I think the key has to be obviously on prevention and completely changing uh, practices because it's everything we're reading just tells us this is not going to go away anytime soon, and if there are lessons learned, it should be about uh, the fact that that manufacturing. Uh, in general, probably needs to have uh, more stringent protocols. I know that probably companies will argue, um, you know, oh my God, you know the the amount of regulations we face. Well, that may be true, but the the health and safety aspect of uh, of manufacturing suddenly has been upended by this, and this won't be the last pandemic. This won't be the the last time we see this, and so. I think this is an opportunity to get used to that new reality that just like if somebody's on a processing line and they get their finger cut off, yeah, you stop things and you figure out what went wrong. Um, and so I, I tend to agree with, uh, with you, Rachel, on that, that I think um, there, there's, there's really got to be no other, other way but um, you know, to take really pretty draconian moves here because it's um, and and then just build that into your business plan and that may mean production is lower that may mean a lot of different things that may mean completely rejigging your line so that um, so that people have more separation I mean it's going to take a lot of investment you know and you're seeing that coming out of the quarterly earnings of some of these companies um, you're seeing that the investments required to keep workers safe is going to hit the bottom lines. But long-term, uh, those investments will be worth it. And I think people that have not made those investments up until now, um, it'll, it'll, it'll probably bite them um, if and when that does happen. It's like so many things uh, coronavirus-related. It's just going to drag on a lot longer than I think we may think at this point. These changes in the workplace in in factories and and stuff are going to be with us for quite a while so you know companies have no choice but to um get their plants in order to protect their workers because this this is not going to be over in june july august and probably not the rest of the year i wouldn't imagine oh, god that's depressing but um, you're probably right. So yeah, buckle in everybody. You know, there's signs that things are getting back to normal a little bit. Some signs people are going back into offices and, um, boy, yeah, we hope all our listeners and readers out there are, 
uh, maybe going to see some semblance of normalcy in the months to come, slowly, slowly, but surely. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, just a reminder, we do have another webinar coming up. If you were able to attend our one earlier this month uh, and enjoyed it, and I think many of you did, uh, we have another one, and we're going to give everybody a coronavirus break. We're going to talk about plant-based seafood. John will be moderating this event. We've got a fantastic lineup of speakers for this as well. Uh, we have Nutreco. We have Good Catch. We have Blue Nalu. Um, and, uh, and we have Santa Monica Seafood. So we're going to have a really interesting discussion uh, about where plant-based and cell-based seafood fits into the industry and what the uh, seafood industry should do with this trend. So join us for that. That's on May 12th. Uh, you can find information about that on our website or on www.intrafishevents.com. All right, folks, we'll leave it there, and we'll talk to you next week.